Hello there. Welcome to the IWS podcast. This is RJ, your host, and I have a very special guest today, my man, Anthony Cook. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Yourself? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Um, I wanted to, of course, build on the conversation we started to have offline uh, last week. You know, the platform is largely focused on mental health. A lot of it is about representation and really trying to be accessible and reach out to the youth, to the younger men out there who don't know a lot of the different lived experiences that we have, the careers that we pursue, you know, the families that we build. And so being able to have other men, men of color to talk about those experiences are a large focus of the platform. And so I want to start, if it's okay, with asking you a bit about your upbringing and the family dynamic of your environment that you grew up in. Sure. Um, I'm just going to rip that Band-Aid off, right? Yes, sir. Right. Let's dive in. <laughs> um, so I'm uh, I'm a man of color, but I'm biracial. My mother's white. My uh, my father's family is, is black. Um, all kinds mixed out over there from yeah. Africa to Jamaica. So we've got the African-Caribbean connection. Um, my mom's side of the family... I remember correctly is uh, Irish and German. Oh wow! Um, I grew up at grade school. It was my mom and my dad in the house. My mom, my dad was military. Um, mm. My mom has been a paralegal as, as long as I can remember. He he was in the navy, so we bounced around a good little bit when I was younger. Um, but <laughs> very quickly, that diverted. Um, it was about, I think I was third grade third grade and it's kind of where my memories start of my childhood i don't i don't remember mm-hmm. a lot prior to that but you know childhood trauma that kind of you mm-hmm. forget everything up to that because those things kind of stand out so some of the key memories that i tend to talk about um that kind of led to the split between my mom and my dad was uh my dad at the time was selling dope in Washington, D.C. That's where that was mm-hmm. the, the naval base that we was on. Um, it was in Maryland. And uh, I actually remember going, I didn't tell you this. I actually remember going on some runs with him, too. I, as an oh, adult, wow. now I realized what he was doing. But as a kid, I just thought we was dropping him off wherever he was trying to go to work. I mean, he was he was going to work, but not the kind of work that I thought he was. Correct. Going to correct. Um, there was a, a moment I was in a car with him and his boys. And uh, they was just passing around the crack pipe, put that to my mouth. Uh, my dad, you know, was, wasn't just hustling in the streets selling dope. He was hustling with other females, too, even though he was married to my mom. So he used to take mm. you know, my, my younger brother, who I didn't mention. So it, it, it was uh, my dad, my mom and my younger brother. I'm going to get to my sister in a minute. Um he used to take us over to this one lady's house. And that was the last lady I believe he was with um, Mm. that I can remember that he cheated on my mom with. But I remember walking upstairs. She had a son. We was kind of hungry, needed something to eat. I was in an unfamiliar place. I'm trying to figure out like what we can get into. So I walked Mm. upstairs to ask my dad what was going on. They was on the bed smoking crack, whatever the case is. And then the last little two pieces. There's two more. Um, I don't know why they fought. I've, I've talked to my dad and, and my mom about it. They have different stories at, as an adult, but sure. I remember my dad coming home just super agitated. And um, 
the, the argument kind of went in the square, went through like the hallway, right? When you walk in off to the side of the hallway with some stairs that went upstairs, a bathroom, the hallway led into the, the family room, den area off to the left was the dining room. They're following that around. When you come in past the dining room, the pantry's off to the right. And now you're into the kitchen. That's when I see my dad grab my mom. And now they back out into that hallway where they started at. Bro, he knocks her clean out. Like, wow. I know this is not what happened. But like, as a kid, this is how I remember it. I remember blood flinging off her face onto the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was on top of her hitting her. So I jumped on his back trying to protect my mom and he hit me. He flung me up against the wall. Wow. And uh, it, I think it was at that moment when he realized what he did to his son, not necessarily his wife, but his son, he kind of backed off. And uh, I remember the police coming and, and taking him away or whatever. And my mom moved around a lot. Uh, at that point, we tried to stay up north just because she was working for some prominent um, law firms and such. Yeah. And it was shortly thereafter they tried to like reconcile stuff. So this is my last memory of of my father before we came down to Florida Okay, Uh, playing Super Mario Brothers. I hadn't seen my dad for a minute and he came into the house and I was like, dad, you want to sit down with me and play? And he was like, nah, I ain't got time for that. And he left. So I remember a few days later, my mom woke us up and she was like, grab everything you can. We're leaving. So we just, half the house we left, like literally just left it there. I don't have baby pictures. I don't have pictures when I was young. There's very few that I've collected over the years that I hold on to that I've kind of gathered from family and stuff. But like we came down here with nothing. We hopped on a train uh, that came down here to Florida. I met my white family for the first time because up in D.C., that's where my black family lived. I didn't even know I. My mom was white, but I ain't even know I had a white family like that. Just right. didn't my, my little mind. Um, so I met her parents and I meet this young lady that they had that was introduced to me as a cousin. But my mom low key said, this is your sister. I didn't even know I had a sister. I was in third grade before I found that out. And, um, you know, good people, but they were there was definitely some racism that was existent. So the story starts to come out about how my mom even ended up up north with my dad and our black family. When she married a black man, they disowned her. They was like, you ain't a part of this family no more. Uh, that, which is why we never met them. Um, right, right. And my sister came from a previous marriage. So she's my half sister. And so when my mom got married, she kind of gave up the rights, parental rights to her dad at the time. And then her wow. dad, gave up parental rights to my grandparents, my mom's parents. So they had been raising, Roxanne was her name. They had been raising her for for as, as long as, as I've known. Wow. Um, so it was, it was this weird dynamic because we was up north and I was around a lot of, uh, I always had in my mind, like being down in D.C. and, and being around my black family, like super intelligent, right? D.C. is the hotbed of right, black right. intelligence. You know what I mean? So I just remember all these professional women in my life and like my black family is super intelligent, super sharp, just just with it. I mean, my grandma's in her uh, 70s right now and she just launched her own business. Like she just. Wow. (laughs) Shout out to grandma. Yeah, they stay. She retired. She worked for the Pentagon, retired like three, four years ago. And then in COVID, she was like, "Eh, 
I'm going to open up my own business. It has been thriving ever since. Like, that's just how my, my black family is awesome. like that, man. They just always hustling and, and doing things. But uh, when I came down here and was with my white family, we lived with my mom's sister and her husband and two cousins. So we, it was the four of us in a bedroom. My mom slept in one bedroom and my aunt and uncle in another bedroom. And they were mm-hmm. violent too, man. They used to get into fights all the time. I remember one time my aunt was on one side of the living room. My uncle was on the other. They fighting, cursing at each other, cigarettes hanging out their mouth. My aunt picked up a fresh pot of coffee and threw it across the living room at them and smashed on the wall and stuff. So Ooh. I came up and it wasn't like violence all the time, but it was significant enough for me sure. to remember it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and my white family, like they just, they were, they was, they was racist, man. It was times my aunt would come over when we finally moved out and got our own place. It's time she come over to the house. My mom was working three jobs. So she just, she went home. She was trying to do the best to provide for us. Right. My aunt will come over in a drunken stupor, be banging on the door. I'm, we could, we could say stuff, right? Like I'm yeah. not a person, but I'm not to say no, stuff. Hey, you, yeah, we could, we could speak I, freely. We could speak freely. There's an adult. Okay. Okay. Just going to make sure. I want to make sure. Uh, she come over to the door, uh, knocking, banging, talking about, come outside, you nigger lover. Wow. She say stuff like that all the time, man. Like, it, I don't know. It was, it, it was a mess. And then going to, with my grandparents, my grandpa, I used to tell, when I got old enough, I was about 18, 19. I was like, mom, I don't want to go down there no more. He just, he used to make me legit, man, pick like rose bushes, clean the house, uh, it, I, I felt like he was treating me like a slave. That's what it felt like. Wow. Um, and, and again, they were good people. I just, I think there was generational things that was going yeah. on and they just kind of thought one thing, my grandma, I know she loved me to death, but it just was very uncomfortable there. It'd be times my sister would call us a nigger and stuff. And I just, I didn't mm. like being down there, you know, but yeah. that was what we had because we left from up North. So fast forward, my dad calls, I hadn't seen him for years, just down here living, doing stuff with my mom. We, I was helping my mom clean hotel rooms from third grade all the way up to like eighth grade. Uh, but my dad reaches out to us when I hit fifth grade and I start to realize what's going on because he would call collect all the time. He, he got locked up. He got sentenced 53 years. Wow. Um, and so I didn't have a relationship prior to him being locked up. That last time I seen him was when I was playing Mario uh, brothers and he was like i ain't got time for this son right right uh so he got uh convicted up in virginia we were down here in florida so my relationship with my father was built with him being locked up behind bars on collect phone calls and us being able to visit him maybe like once a year until we got him moved down here to florida when i was in high school i think it was the latter years of my high school time so um I will say one of the good things about my relationship with my dad is my dad did uh he got saved when he was in, in prison and did introduce the Lord to me. I was about 13. And to be quite honest, like that probably is what saved me. Cause at that point, um I, I was I was a good student, but I had a nasty little attitude. Uh, and it wasn't, I was super quiet. But mm-hmm. the thing is, like when I told you I moved around a lot up north, especially my mom would try to put us in good schools, which were predominantly white. And within the first week, it was some white kid calling me a nigger or my brother. So they was catching these hands real quick. And I right. would get kicked out all the time. 
And then we, we talked and we did talk a little bit about this. My mom, so I was at these white schools, I was too dark for them, right? Right. My mom put me at a black school. That was the last place that that we were at before we moved down here to Florida. And they was going in on me at the black school. So now I'm having to fight people that I'm like, wait a minute, I'm one of y'all. Like, what's going on? Right. And then I moved, I moved down here to Florida and I'm at this school. <laughs> it was he ended up being a good friend of mine in high school, but it was an Asian dude. He done called me the N-word. So he had to catch these hands too. So I was like constantly just my emotional regulation was was very low. So certain yeah. things would just set me off and I would just I would just fight. I got kicked out in fourth grade for knocking my fourth grade teacher out. I was fighting a kid that called me the N-word. Somebody grabbed me. I thought it was his boy. So I just turned around swinging. Man, it was my 60-something-year-old fourth grade teacher. I done wow. laid her out. So they kicked me out in fourth grade um, as well. So it, had I not been introduced to my faith journey at that time, I probably would have ended up down the same path. As I said, said to you before, it yeah. was a time where my dad was locked up. He just got out two years ago. My brother was locked up my senior year. My mom was locked up. So I'm literally the only one that hasn't been locked up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when I got saved, I, I stayed busy with church. I was in high school now at this point. So I was basketball, track, cheerleading, chorus, uh, fellowship of Christian athletes. Like I just stayed busy. So there was no room for me to get in trouble. And because I was involved in so much, I had to adjust my attitude because of I course. Was, lost all of those things if I was getting kicked out. So yeah, no, that's, um, that's absolutely important. I, th I think that covers most of my upbringing. I mean, that's that, to get into adulthood, but that's the key stuff right there. No, no, no. But that, that's a lot to, that's a lot to, <laughs> to digest. I appreciate yeah. all the, all the transparency there. Cause you cut, you did cover a lot. I mean, I can, definitely imagine that there's a lot of young men out there in particular that can relate to that type of story. You know, especially if we just break it down in the context of those of us that don't have fathers in our homes or in our, or don't have a prevalent role in our life. Yeah. Right. Which you, you were making that point off and on. Yeah. And to take it a step further, right. Even when you were talking about, you know, to try to couple in with that, uh, we'll, we'll get deeper into this, the identity aspect when you were talking about when you have, two different ties of your family that aren't from the same racial or ethnic background and how sometimes that can play in how the children are treated or in your case, mm -hmm. severely mistreated. I would say that's severe mistreatment. I mean, obviously you can't mm -hmm. be thrown out an N word like that yeah. and, and think it's not going to play on a young man or young woman's mind. Right. And then you, and it's interesting. It's interesting when you were describing that. So you were talking about how your family would say that to you. But then in this, and obviously, you know, like I didn't hear you, at least there's a different example. I didn't hear you say you put hands on them. But then in all these examples in school, people are saying the same thing. You're like, everybody got to get the business. Yeah. But it's interesting, like, you know, that to me, when you explain that, like in the order that you explained it in chronologically, that makes perfect sense why you were so sensitive. Not just because the word is power. We already know that part. But the fact that you're being mistreated with that word, being weaponized against you in your home with mm. your family that, you know, mm. obviously... You didn't grow up with your whole life, but, you know, you spent some time with them. Then you're in school and these people are using it to antagonize you. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or your yeah. brother. Yeah. So it's, in it's interesting. Like, uh, the reason why I make that that point is because sometimes we're not as aware 
of the environments that we come up in and how it shapes our perception of ourselves and of our reality. Yeah. So the way we behave with people is different, you know, like that to me was a beautiful example of how if you're mistreated so much, you're going to act out in other ways. You might not be able to, to act out in your home, right? Because you might, you know, you might be in a hostile environment where somebody will check you like a man may check you if yeah. you were a young, if you were a young man. Yeah. But in school, when you got your peers, you're like, hey, don't you better not talk to me like that because you're going to get the business if you, if you think that I'm going to let that slide. Because yeah. I'm already being mistreated over here at home. Yeah. You're not about to do that to me over here. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. 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 You, you know what? Well, all the years of therapy and stuff, I have never made that connection until you just now articulated that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. I get it because of the work that I've had to do and also the environments I came up in. Like I grew up in a lot of these hostile environments when I was young and seen a lot of young men who didn't have fathers around who their moms were primarily raising them. And a lot of times they're wild, you know, and it's not, I don't think it's because young men don't respect mothers or nothing like that. I think that's, it just goes to speak to the importance of having the male figure in their life. Their father mm -hmm. is the most ideal person to have, even if, even if, the two of us aren't together to still play a significant role, if you get what I mean. Because sometimes I, I, I don't want us to misconstrue. Well, it wasn't a healthy relationship like you were talking about. You were describing, right? Your mother, yeah. your father, that wasn't a healthy relationship. So we don't necessarily want those people staying together just for the sake of the children or just staying together because it's yeah. going to negatively impact them. Because yeah. right, the stories you're telling is not what I'm sure you want, which we'll get into later, your children to be telling those stories, which I'm sure they, yeah. they would never but we know how that can play on you and on your mind. And so to that point, I think it's better to have the father present because more often than not, the child may be with the mother. But yeah. if it's an unhealthy relationship, we don't need to be living in the same house. We don't need to be in a romantic relationship, but we need to collaborate and co-parent effectively. Yeah. I deal with yeah. that a lot. Yeah. So I definitely want to make that point for those out there that may be in that type of situation because your lived experience sounds like it can negatively impact the way that children behave outside of the home because of what you're forcing them to witness and observe. I don't know yeah. if, you agree, if you would agree. No, with that. I totally, so I know I totally agree with RJ. Like when you're saying that, especially for people listening, the research there, so there's two parts to this. I focus really on, on fathers, but the research mm -hmm. on having an absent parent and the detrimental effects it has on kids is, it's one of the saddest things ever. Yeah. But even more than that is when you have an absent father, people don't realize how important the father figure is in a house oh, yeah. to have a present, actively engaged father, the positive impact that that has. And when you remove that, the outcomes for both female and male children, it, it's, yes. it's bad. It's, man. it's, it's disastrous. Bad. It really I is. No, I, I agree with you. And that's part of what I talk about in therapy with some of, I get a lot of male clients that you can imagine. I get a fair amount of fathers and obviously I get also young men that I kind of touch on a little bit, but I deal a lot with co-parenting and cause I co-parent myself. And so I think a lot about the necessity, right? So in some cases you'll hear where maybe one side may say, and I'll, you know, to be frank here, I don't really hear men say that. I, I never really heard a man say, I don't need his mother. Like I've never heard that in my life ever, yeah. but I have heard some women say we don't need his father. Yeah. And I'm here to, to, you know, confront that 
and try to debunk that because I see just like I think you see the importance of it. A lot of these young men out here that, you know, run the streets, that are involved in gang violence, that are overly aggressive and hostile in their day to day life. A lot of that comes from that lack of that male presence and male leadership because we we number one, we don't condone that, but we demand that level of respect, not through necessarily through violence, but through respect. Yeah, I give what I want to get. I respect my my son. So I expect respect in return because I give it. Yeah. And then I need you to exude that everywhere else you go. You don't disrespect your mother. You don't disrespect your teacher. You don't disrespect your peers or other adults around you. Because I'm telling you, because I give it to you freely. Yeah. And I make that choice. And you then respect me that you're going to respect the wishes that I'm giving to you, the expectations that I'm giving to you. Yeah. That's what I believe. But yeah. when you take that away and you expect what I have seen, this is just me. This is more on the therapy side of talking now. Young men, there comes a point, and I think it's primarily in adolescence, where if there's a young man and his single mother, he's going to start pushing her buttons. He's going to start challenging her to a point that she starts getting overly stressed and frustrated with him and many times doesn't know what to do with him. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's because, again, young boys like hate their moms or they just want to be combative. I think that's what happens to your point when you remove that element of that male role model, which is predominantly we would want it to be their father, their bio father. That's the risk that you take. Yeah, that's the games that we end up playing and ends up setting up that young man down a path that we might not be able to bring him back from. Right. Especially if he ends up inside the, you know, the uh, juvenile justice system or the uh, adult prison and jail population. Like I spent a lot of time studying that in college. It's very hard to save them once they've been in. The, the better mm-hmm. thing is to prevent them, you know, right, from getting in their pretrial diversion programs and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. I just say that just to emphasize that point, because I really think that's important. I don't want anybody to think that we're, or I am trying to prop up fathers more than mothers, but what I am saying is they're equally necessary and important. Absolutely. I don't know if you, if you want to add anything to that. No, absolutely. Want. I mean, even developmentally, right? Adolescence, that's what they do. They're, we're boundary testers, right? Correct. In adolescence. So mm-hmm. that's where you that balance is so important. And, and to your point, right? It's not one is more important than the other. Both are equally important. And if people are out there and they find themselves in a situation where they can't be in relation with parent, mother, father, we do know what the research shows. If there is a mentor of that gender, sure. that still provides some of that uh, teaching, that positive impact that we would want to have in our children's lives. So absolutely. And that's why mentoring is so important. We don't have people talk about it, but there's not too many established here in Central Florida like that, where we could say, yeah, let's get our kids here. Let's get them mentored and, and things yeah. like that. But no, I'm with you. Ideally, we want both, right? But if we can't have parent, then are there mentors within the community that maybe we connect our kids with male and or female, depending on, uh, I would say it's for both. Like if it's a male child, they need both because they need to figure out the masculine and the feminine. And if it's uh, daughters, then they need to figure out both as well, right? So we we want that balance for sure. No, I'm with you on that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I... It's funny you say that too, because that's been a lot of my personal experience as I've gotten older. Like I've always sought out mentors and I've been a mentor for a long time, Um, both in, I'm from Gainesville. So 
back then it was, the boys and girls club was like a, a haven for a lot of us some people went to the ymca but that was a little expensive uh so the boys and girls club was where was where a lot of us went right play ball you know you, you were able to play pool ping pong get some tutoring and then just kind of have fellowship with other kids your age whether y'all went to the same school or not which a lot of cases we didn't yeah. so that was cool because you know it kept you out of the street so that was good i'm always a big big supporter of the boys and girls club i was there from like middle school up until i was probably a, a junior i think and so that definitely helped a lot with not putting myself in situations that I probably shouldn't have been in so organizations like that are great i've done big brothers big sisters of central florida when i moved here i was there for a long time so i have a young man that i've basically been with him since he was in fifth grade and um he's like 21 now so nice. definitely been on a journey with him in and out of the school system but going back to your point earlier because this is important um uh, talking about absent parents i don't know if i mentioned this mm -hmm. to you before but like my mom passed away when i was young from uh, brain mm -hmm. cancer and so one thing that i had to learn is to like try to fill in that gap because i knew for example my father also was a navy man he was very strict like what a traditional black man in a lot of places is you know corporal punishment you know very hostile mm -hmm. very tense environment um, you don't talk back you don't speak back you do what you said without any further explanation or justification and so i grew up feeling very uncomfortable uh, most of the time like I, I i would if i had to kind of diagnose myself back then i would say i probably had generalized anxiety because anytime my father was home i was on edge Mm -hmm. because that's the environment that he created it's like mm -hmm. any little thing that went wrong you're probably getting a beating for mm -hmm. so i really i knew when i was becoming a father that that was no part of what i wanted to do because i knew how much i despised it you know but then going back to missing my mom so it was me my my older sister and my father one great thing about what i think family can do if you're fortunate enough to have family there is um and also both my sides of family are different mom's size latina dad's size black so i grew up primarily with my father's family because that's who i live with but i went to go visit my mom's family a lot they were down there in tampa most of them not all of them and so and a lot of them were women a lot of them were my aunts so shout out to them and my grandmother who's no longer with us but they tried to bridge that gap a lot and it was helpful i didn't realize it 100 percent at that time but they gave me a lot of that warmth and empathy and compassion that mm -hmm. I needed, you know, to, to mm -hmm. be a little softer. I got a lot of hardness mm -hmm. from dad. They gave mm -hmm. me a bit of that softness that I needed. They supplemented that. It's not the same as yeah. you said, yeah. but it helped. Yeah. So when you are missing that, I think it's important, you know, if you can to seek those things out, mentorship probably is the easiest to where we, you know, where we can have a little bit of autonomy to try to seek it out. You know, family, you don't get to pick that. So, you know, you, you're at the mercy of whatever you're born into. I was just yeah. fortunate in that particular way. But mentorship, you absolutely can, you know, if you verbalize that maybe in the, I've seen, for example, when I did Big Brothers, Big Sisters, I started off in the school. Like I didn't go to the community side first. I started off like in the classroom with one child. We got really cool. And then ironically enough, because I actually don't really tell this story a lot, but the guy, his name is Cody. The guy that I've been with now, who is a man now, he was in that classroom. And me not being a teacher, and I, I also realized there's not a lot of men in schools mm -mm. in general. Like a lot of men are not teachers. Most teachers are female. Mm -hmm. And so me being in the school, naturally in the classroom, a lot of the boys gravitated to me of all ethnic backgrounds. Like they all gravitated to me because they're not used to having a man around. Mm -hmm. 
So that was really cool. I felt like a rock star every time I got to go there, especially during <laughs> lunchtime. Um, but the young man that I've been working with for the longest period, he was in that classroom. And the guy that I went there for, we basically did the school year. And he was like, okay, I think I'm in a better position. Like, thank you for all your support. And then the other guy, he asked me because he knew I was trans. He actually asked the other guy permission. He was like, hey, can I? Can he be my big brother? Because I still need yeah. somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up taking him on after five, and then, then we, we came out of the school and then I was just like going to his house and taking him around and stuff like that. But I know the power of that. Like I know the power again, representation, visibility, mm-hmm. access. Mm-hmm. That's a huge reason why we're here mm-hmm. in, a diff- in a different way, obviously a different format. But to your point, mentorship is very important, especially if you're missing one of those pieces in your life and it might help you to be a little more grounded as you learn to grow and evolve into a young man or young woman, as you get older. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that at all. No, that's good. That's solid right there. Well, okay. this might be, look, this might be, that may have been the alley. Let me see if I oop it. If I, if I'm jumping, just okay. put me back in. No, you so good. That's why I ended up getting into education. Was that, that reason right there. Beautiful. Um, I, I was working for Nike. I was a manager and some things was going a bit sour. I was about, a week out from getting married and I quit. I was like, this ain't, and I don't quit. I'm, I'm one of them. We ride or die. Like <laughs> you're going to have to fire me. Like I, I don't quit, yeah. but um, I quit. And I was like, I'm about to get married. Like I got <laughs> to figure out how to provide for my family. Right. So, and my wife at the time, she was freaking out. How you going to do that? She knew the story. She knew what was going on. So like I needed to go. Um, they had a great Florida teaching, uh, over here by universal studios. So I put my resume together, got on my best, uh, shirt and tie, walked up in there. Like I'm a teach because I know how to mentor people. I like, I can, I know I can, I've been doing that in church for forever. Like I can do this. I'll learn how to teach. Not a big deal. And I walked in, it was so many people. I was so scared. (laughs) <laughs> and I walked up to the only person that would, that didn't have nobody at their table, and I sat down with them, gave them my resume, and she it was a, a Southern Belle, Dr. Cecile Diaz. She she thank God for her. Um, she I sat down with her. She, she was opening up a new school, a K eight school, right 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 from where I live at. Okay, and uh, which I didn't know either. Like I just sat down with her. I had no idea. Um, and she was like, well, we're opening up a new school on such and such road. And I was like, I, I live on that road. And she was like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, she's looking over my resume. And she's like, you're not quite what we're looking for. Like, we need some seasoned teachers, you know, new school. I was like, no problem. And she was like, I have nobody here. Do you want to practice interviewing? I was like, sure. Hour and a half later, she offered me a job. She offered me a job as a teacher, as a fifth teacher. Yeah. So I went on my honeymoon and the day I got back, it was uh, pre-planning. I'm, we're in. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how to, how to be a teacher. And I tell right. these jokes. So, so my my degree is marriage and family couples therapy with an endorsement in school counseling. I was working on those two degrees while when I started teaching. I had Got a it. year done. I had two more years left to go. Um, and uh, I say that to say I know how to develop relationships. So that was my mindset when I went into the classroom. I was like. I got to get these parents and these kids to love me because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes and I need them to give me some grace and some forgiveness. <laughs> right. That's exactly what they did. My kids were run through a wall for me, but I was still learning how to teach, teach, right? 
I know how to run groups. That was part of my systems training and, and counseling therapies and modalities and things like I know how to do that. I can run a group, but I didn't know how to teach the content. Like I was having to figure that out. So there was this one time I taught all subjects. There was this one time, RJ, (laughs) there was one time I taught this math lesson. I was doing the intro. I was up at the board working it out, boom, yeah. asking questions. Yeah, yeah, go write that up on the board, bam, bam, boom, boom. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm like, I'm killing this lesson. <laughs> a little girl in the background, Jasmine. Jasmine raised her hand, um, a little Latina. She said, Mr. Cook, that's wrong. I said, <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? And she said, she worked the whole problem. And I stepped back from the board, and I looked at the board, and I looked at her. I looked back at the board, and I said, Jasmine, you know what? I'm dead wrong right now. I done taught y'all whole <laughs> lesson the wrong way. I said, it's lunch. Y'all gonna go to lunch. Mr. Cook's gonna get right. We're gonna, we gonna fig- figure this thing out. I had so yeah. many times like that where I just, I had to, I'm learning on the fly, but I will say this. My kids was always tops in our district for their FCAT scores. I ended up moving down to third grade, did that for a few years before I became a school counselor. But my whole thing was, Education was a front for me to be able to mentor uh, students. And just like you experienced, I tend uh, I tended to get the black and brown students more often than our other teachers. And I would get the problem kids more often than our other teachers because I knew how to work with those kids. One, because my race plays a part. Two, yes, because I'm a strong male presence. And three, I actually turned out to be a pretty decent teacher. So it, it was like this triple threat for them. And my last couple of years at Bella Lago, I started a mentoring program and they literally, I'll never forget this, Shaquilla Henderson, shout out to her. She's actually a principal out in Orlando at a private mm. school. She, um, she said, Cook, when I became a school counselor, first thing she tasked me with, I need you to take the baddest kids up in middle school and get them right. And I looked at her like, I don't. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what you're doing. We're gonna figure it out. Yeah, we're gonna figure it out. So all of my, all but one of my boys, I have 15, 15 consistently every year. I, once a class left, I added on boys because I high needs. I felt like I, I couldn't do more than that, although I wanted to. But um, all of them, we reduced their referrals down to one on the whole year, where they had like one a week. Um, that's significant. We, yeah, we increased their attendance. Eighty-five uh, percent of the school year they were in school. Uh, none of them had less than a C. And um, as I said, only one kid ended up getting kicked out. And and a few of them I, I I I keep up with. They're doing well. They have families now. They're professionals. Things like that. But RJ, it was just as simple as I taught them manners, and we had conversations. We used Why Try curriculum. Um, and it just has those tough conversations about life uh, and and how to problem solve and critically think and how to deal with conflict. And I legitimately they walked around with they walked around with the check sheet. Did they hold a door? Did they say yes, ma'am? No, ma'am. Uh, were they in dress code? Did, were they polite to fellow students when a student maybe tried them? How did they respond? Like I had all these little markers of like. Uh, just manners that and that's all it was that's all I did with them and then every month we had like pizza and just had guys chat and then once a quarter I take them to some special place there the end of the year we went paintballing which was funny because you get the hardest boys out there get hit by a paintball and they turn in 
to little, little babies like, crying and stuff uh, like oh yeah oh yeah it was <laughs> my hardest kids broke when we were out on the paintball field but um that was what i use education for i use it as a front for both male and female students because here's we just talked about this the other side is do you have a positive male role model in your life that yep. can teach you this side this side of the world so absolutely um, I, I did that and I stayed because I, and I said this to you, like I'm that positive representation, right? Like I got locks. I, I, I'm a little swaggy. I, I still speak your terminology, but then I can flip it and I can be super intelligent. I can speak in this circle and that circle. And it's like, right. wait a minute, cook looks like what I see in my hood or looks like what I see on TV, but he's here. Like, in, in the flesh, like He's at real. our school. Yeah, like this is this is real. Like I can come up to Cook and be like, yo, this is what I got going on in my life. Well, you know, father sold crack. I, I ran with the dope boys when I was in Midland High School. They lived in my neighborhood. I never I never got into drugs, but those are the those are the fellas that looked out for me. So right. I'm gonna ride with them because they protected me, right? Um, so we can have those conversations. Oh, such and such tried me. Well, let's talk about, you know. Some of the laws of the street. If you approach it this way, here's the results. If you approach it this way, here's the results. Which one gets you more respect at the end of the day? Like we you having these conversations, right? Because yeah. I'm gonna keep it real with you. I obviously made it out. I didn't go into prison, which I'm supposed to be in prison. At the time, I'm married, I got three kids, I'm uh associate pastoring at a church. Like I'm I'm being su- a successful positive role model in the community. So I did the work. So if you're interested in knowing how to do the work, then we can have those conversations, right? So I stayed in that area because that's our most vulnerable area in Osceola County, mainly because I felt like that my higher purpose was to be a positive male role model where if mentoring was a door open for a student and they wanted that, then I would gladly uh, provide that for them. So I didn't have to join a boys club or uh, Boys and Girls Club or YMCA right. or any special mentoring program, I became a teacher so that I could mentor mentor students and figure out how to teach so that I didn't screw their academics up. That was how no, I, that's that, I went into the field. No, that, and that makes perfect sense. You, you already answered my, my next question, so good. We're going to keep that rolling along. But I do want to touch on some of the things you said, though. I mean, number one, shout out to you for being willing to work in the school because like we were just talking about, there's not enough men that do it. I have a client who... I work with pro bono who is a teacher is a black male teacher uh and up in tallahassee and i understand a bit about some of the challenges that teachers face i I actually give him this paradigm a lot as i talk about you know he's in a female dominated field i'm in a female dominated field so there's certain Mm -hmm. things that we can inherently understand about each other and how it might be different i want to ask you a question before i give you more feedback because i'm I'm curious what you would say because i know what he said when it comes to troubled students, particularly if you're talking about troubled male students, do you think that part of the reason that they maybe get roles referrals or they're being escorted out of the classroom, do you think any any part of that has to do with who's teaching in that classroom and with their ability to maybe relate to some of the circumstances that that young man or young woman may be dealing with in their personal life? The... I think the appropriate answer is yes, not in all cases, but in many cases, for sure. I mean, and the data national wide shows that. So that's not like I'm not saying any, it's not a hot take from me or right, anything. Right. 
super controversial. I mean, the data shows that uh, black and brown males specifically are uh, written up at a disproportionate rate compared to their female counterparts and their white counterparts. So, right. I mean, that's that's what the data shows. And it has effects on long term effects like our <clears throat> black and brown males are not going to college. It's a lot lower rate than their female counterparts, their For white sure. counterparts. So it definitely what happens in the K-12 system to your point, it does have some long lasting effects for sure. Uh, but you know, the other side of that too, RJ, is you have people that look like you and their experience, I, mean, I was just having to make, and maybe this, maybe I'm pushing it, but let me just toss this out here. And if we oh. want to scrap it, we can scrap it. But I was just having this conversation with uh, a, a good friend of mine. We were talking about what it means to be black and how people de uh, define this differently and how my black experience may look completely different than your black right. experience, right? And you right. can use that for any race, but since we're, you know, focusing on uh, people of color right now, we're right. going to stay in, in this realm, right? So I've run into black educators that have a very different experience, black experience than what I had and then what their students have. So even though in your mind, it's like, oh, they look like me, their experience is totally Absolutely. different. They can't even connect with a student at the level that they are. Right. So I right, say right. that to say because I want to make sure that we're clear. And like we're not saying, oh, it's because there are white teachers in there because I got some. Listen, I got a white educator that's right down here from the street from me. Mr. Meachin, he was my former principal. That if any ain't one of the most brother brothers that I know <laughs> up in this piece and his work is primarily with black and brown students like he mentors black and brown kids and it's the way our students gravitate to him is absolutely insane so no doubt, we're no not doubt. saying that it's uh the general sweeping idea is oh if you're white you can't relate to black and brown kids or if absolutely you're black, you can't. that's not what we're not that's not what we're saying but what we are saying that there are times where we find who is in the classroom because they they don't empathize or find a way to connect with those students or try to understand right. what their situation is. Yes, they will go to more punitive ways of punishing a student as opposed to redirecting and actually what I would say is teaching. We're teaching academics, but we're also teaching life skills. And that means Ooh. you're, wait, wait. you're say, say that for say that for the camera one more time, please, sir. <laughs> We're not just sure. teaching academics, we're teaching life skills. So my job in the classroom is to prepare you for life once you leave the K-12 system. So I need to know how to equip you academically, if that's the route you want to take. But I also have to learn how to equip you socially because you're going to leave me. And if you show your butt out in my classroom with that anger because I said something you didn't like, when you get out into the real world, you're going to get that times 10. And I got to make sure you're equipped so that you don't respond ill and have consequences that you're further regret, right? So, absolutely. And I think my advantage was because I was a counselor, so it was easy for it was easier oh, for me. I have no, I have no doubt that that played a significant role. Yeah, no yeah. It was, we would have family time. We would have family meetings in my classroom. Like we would have those discussions and and really process emotions, process uh, social skills, and things like that. That was important to me, and that that's what made my classroom. Like it was like a family. My kids were open with me, honest with me, with each other. We didn't have fights. We didn't have a lot of arguments. We had a lot of fun. I'll tell you this one thing because I know you're about to say what you're about to say. So it's funny because I just got nominated for this fellows program with um, NCAN. And a lot of my kids that I taught saw the post 
and they're coming out the woodworks right now, RJ. Like, I don't do what I do for accolades. People that know sure. me know my head's down, my hands on the plow. Like, I'm just, I'm working. I just work. Like, I just want to make impact and change. I'm like in the trenches Correct. doing whatever I need to do. So it was good for me to see this. My kids are coming out like, oh my gosh, that's that's the best teacher I've had, best counselor I've had. Do y'all remember when we used to have family meetings? Do y'all remember when Mr. Cook would just swallow a cupcake whole when we used to play shoe jackers at the at the playground? Like <laughs> all this crazy stuff that I forgot that I did with them. When we would do science experiments and it would be a mess in a room and like district people would come in and he'd be like, oh, we about to get in trouble. Like that's just how we rode. I'm glad that my kids had a positive experience. And in part, it wasn't just academics, but I had to meet them where they were as people, you know? There you go. That no, to me is so important. Big, 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 big facts, man. We I definitely want to support and encourage everything that you just said there. And I and I I definitely appreciate the clarification. I often say on pretty much every episode that black people are not a monolith. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like you were saying earlier. My, the brother I was speaking about, he's of Jamaican descent. So there's a slightly different angle in how he grew up mm. and how actually that plays a role in how he how he teaches and how he handles it. And so I like to always distinguish that so that people understand just because you're in the skin does not mean that you inherently understand all of my lived experiences. What it can mean, though, is there are some commonalities that yeah. we do experience and it helps to not have to always express and articulate that. Yeah. Right. It kind of yeah. saves a little bit of time. We can kind of jump into the meat of what are you struggling with? What are you having difficulty with? How can I help you? Yeah. But to your point, the reason why I asked you that question is because, you know, again, I'm not like an educator, but I've spent a fair amount of time. Both in higher ed and obviously being around K through 12 uh, students. And it's been just general observation, I would say, that young men are perceived being more aggressive and angry and hostile. Now, to be fair to the probably the female teachers, I can understand that because a lot of the environments they come from. And when I environments, I don't just mean like the hood they grow up in because everybody didn't grow up in the hood. It could just be that the household that they in was very, very hostile. Yeah. Right. But mom and dad, like you were expressing from your lived experience. So that young man is bringing that into his school or that young woman is bringing that into her school. So it's not to say that that 100 percent has anything to do with it, but. I do think it's important to acknowledge that. And then if if also to take it a step further, if I'm a young female teacher, perhaps, or just a female teacher in general, and we know I learned this, and this was years ago, that these kids are getting big, man. When I was like, when I was mentoring in the fifth grade, there was like a girl who was like only a few inches shorter than me. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, like, what are they putting in this food? You guys are growing up like, like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so- I say that because I can understand a female teacher being intimidated, right, by some of her students, especially if they're, you know, comparable size to you and they get upset. It's like, yo, this is, you know, this could be a problem. Mm -hmm. So having a male teacher, again, this is not making, I'm not trying to make a point that men are are better than women, but I'm saying in terms of like security, if I feel like I'm more under threat because these children are about my size, very, very upset right now. Not, and I'm not sure how to de-escalate them or what I'm doing to de-escalate them isn't quite working. I can understand you like calling security or needing to get that student removed. But I also know that men, we might have a different approach on how to resolve that issue where we yeah. might not have to recruit somebody else that might cause um, police to get involved, charges to be filed, a, a student getting kicked out of school. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, yeah. there's, there's proper ways to escalate based on that situation. And I think men, we would handle a little differently because we are a little bit safer 
to engage in those types of uh, discussions or trying to resolve these very hostile, intense moments. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. That's my perception. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's so it's tough in the environment we find ourselves in, like our current climate. Let me not say environment, our current climate, yes. right? Because we got to be careful with what we say. We don't want to offend right. nobody. But I think it makes rational sense that there are some things that women are more equipped with to deal with other female students. Yes. And men may be a little bit better equipped to deal with things that are for male students. And yes. just from sheer physical, like you're bringing up the physical side of things. Yeah, like size. Yeah. Yeah. Just sheer size. Right. Like and you're and you're a male student and you're upset, even if it's somebody that you respect, you may be physically imposing or and or intimidating at that moment. But a male teacher that might comparable in size or even bigger, it whether or not you want to admit it will change it will shift it will. that interaction right so thank just you. like thank you this side or reputation like i know i know so and so down there i know about him just sheer reputation is kind of like oh yeah yeah you know what yeah cook you know this no i'm ready to talk yeah yeah we could talk about that for sure like it just makes sense to me just yeah, a pure absolutely. rational sense so absolutely yeah, you. thank you thank you thank you and of course like you know i'm very trust me i'm very mindful not because i'm i'm like nervous about what i say but I'm, i make observations you know like i'm not in the education space so i'm not going to presume but i've spent a fair amount of time in there and, and yes as you just pointed out i agree i think if you have a a man not that you have to be like six foot five or something but i think we send we tend to command a certain presence yeah and if a young man is upset, I'm not saying that he's not going to still be upset, but I think there's a greater propensity to get him to calm down Yeah. because there's another man he's conversing with versus a woman. He may not, you know, that might represent not to go too deep, but that might represent like his mother at home and maybe his mother shuts him down often. So mm. then he's looking at this teacher as like an avatar that represents the way his mom is and maybe dad's not around. Yeah. But then Mr. Cook comes in. He's like, oh, okay, it's a serious business. Let me. Cool. And, and, and of course, you're inviting, you know, you're warm. You're like, hey, bro, look, what's going on, man? Come sit down. Let's let's chop it up. Let's talk. Yeah. And it feels more comfortable to maybe engage in that. So instead of me throwing the chair, throwing the desk, getting uh, handcuffs put on me and taking a juvie, maybe I just had to step out of the classroom for a bit so I could cool down Yeah. and then I can come back and continue on with my day. I yeah. make that point because, again, I'm talking sort of about the environments that we're in and the lack of male leadership perhaps and from a teaching standpoint that yeah. representation isn't there you agree with me there that there's much more female teachers than there are men yeah yeah i think that i think that can play a role yeah my colleague we i was talking with the other day and we we're talking about black experiences i she said this and i need to i need to look it up but it feels right she said this is 85 percent female i mean education is 85 percent female and i I would I would venture to say that in the counseling world is probably somewhere close to that for a male, and it's probably oh, it's, way higher it's, it's, when we're talking about higher. black males. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, oh yeah. Color. No, no, no. We're comparable. I would say about ninety to ninety-five percent. And and as a man of color, who especially like us, you know, I'm brother. I'm a I'm a percent within a percent. Like I'm very but, very small. And I know this not because <laughs> let me be clear. This is not to big myself up. Yeah, it's be, you know how I know it's because when people seek me out, I listen to what they say. Say, yeah, you know how long I've been hunting to try to find somebody like you. Yeah, right. Telehealth right. sort of changed the game because yeah. before, just to be clear for those out there that don't know or that not sought out services before, prior to the pandemic, 
not that telehealth didn't exist. It just, of course, wasn't as prevalent. Most right. of the time, you only found a therapist within your immediate vicinity of where you yep. resided. Yeah. Right. Telehealth yep. made it. So now you have access to the whole state. So yep. now I have some clients that are not like, you know, I'm based in Orlando. So I have some that are outside of just this environment. But I say that because that's what I would hear from them. That's how I know. It's yep. not me thinking like I'm special. Yeah. A lot of us are just because there's so few of us that we're usually in hot or high demand. Yeah. So, yes, it's I think it's from my understanding, it's very comparable to the school system. Uh, And I will even add now this is on the higher ed side, but I I usually I had this conversation. One of my um, fellow colleagues who I interviewed uh, a few episodes back, we were talking about this uh, over at UCF. And I told him I didn't have my first black professor, male professor until graduate school. And ironically enough, he taught my multicultural counseling class. I don't know if that's a shock to anybody, but it was just very interesting that it took me going through that much education to finally see somebody that somewhat looked like me. Like he looked like one of my uncles. I think we might actually be related, but that's, <laughs> that, that, that's a side note. But it was it, 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 it was awesome to have that, you know, especially being in a female dominated profession, meaning majority of my classmates were women or yeah. white women. Yeah. And again, this is nothing against them, but it's about when you can have a bit of that shared lived experience, it helps whether you agree with it or not. You know, this is not to say counselors, teachers cannot empathize with their students who do come from different backgrounds. But we also got to be real, though. When you have a lot of that lived experience, man, it does make it a bit easier. Yeah. Like even when I listen to your story, I can't wait till people play back and listen to what you said. When you, that's why I didn't interrupt you at all. When you went in and you were talking about your family, I could just imagine how many young men can relate to that story. Yeah. I can just imagine. And like, yo, and he turned out like that. Wait, go back, summarize what he said, draw the picture board, put all the stuff that he said he went through. And somehow that equated, right? Math equation. Somehow he got over here. No lockup with his family, good family man, great job, want to be impactful in his community with young men in particular to don't not maybe have to go through some of the same challenges he went through. How did that happen when so many don't? How? I think it's important, again, to hear those stories so we understand it doesn't have to be your outcome. It is difficult. Let's not get it twisted. It is difficult to not go down those paths Mm -hmm. because in some cases they are they are kind of laid out for you. You know, that's why we talk about the school to prison pipeline. It, it is very likely that those things can happen to you, but it doesn't have to. But you do need you need mentors. You need guidance. You need people, older people who care about you. If you're not getting that from, let's say, your family, your immediate family, you yeah. need those people to give you the game, to give you that guidance, to give you that wisdom so that you can choose a different path. Because a lot of us don't have that luxury. So we just make the same mistakes. And then yeah. because we're not, now I'm kind of pivoting to, to what men, we usually don't do. Because we're not comfortable and we're taught to never be comfortable to express ourselves, we don't give our young men the game. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. A lot of it could be pride, could be embarrassment, could be shame, could be guilt. But a lot of those things create walls that make it very difficult for us to open up to them, to tell mm-hmm. them where we screwed up, where the, the, the guys I used to run with, or the way I used to treat women, or the environment I grew up with with my family, and the choices that I made. 
if I'm unwilling to give them that game and that experience, they're in many cases doomed to repeat the same. And I feel like we can do better. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to if you want to piggyback or add anything to that. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, you, you said something that connected to when we were talking about education mm-hmm. uh, and <clears throat> boys regulating their emotions and stuff. You know, I, I think what often happens is. I think what often happens is we do a disservice to our boys to make it not okay to talk about emotions, one, and or it has to look a certain way, two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then underneath that the intentionality behind that, because when I, I when I reflect back on my, like on me growing up, good student, but I had these big emotions. I did not know. I I didn't know how, how to communicate that. In fact, I say this because we're, we're healed and we're past this, but my mom's favorite word for me growing up was pussy all the time. If I show any emotion, I was a pussy. I, I tore my Achilles tendon, RJ. (laughs) Wow. I tore my Achilles tendon. I said, ma, something ain't quite right. And she said, quit being a pussy. That was like the go-to, but I mean, I get it now. I, she, my mom, she was busting her ass, working three jobs, doing what she was doing. Like mm-hmm. who has time to deal with a young man's emotions? Right? And I'm emotional. I'm emotional. I know this about myself. I'm emotional. I'm very in tune with my emotions. I know that I'm a unicorn that way when it comes to being a man, like I I'm very much that way. My youngest son reflects that part of me back to me. I see that in him, yeah. but at, at that time, like, who wants to take the time? Who has time? Like, you know, quit. It, that's just the go-to. Quit being a pussy. Quit showing your emotions. Suck that junk up. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, it's funny. It's interesting to me. I think uh, the conversations around like social emotional learning and stuff and that there's all of this. Um, it's such a hot button topic to me. And I'm like, okay, you don't like the phrase, but who in their right mind says we don't want to teach our young men and women, but especially our men, how to regulate their emotions? Because what happens, RJ, we don't teach them as kids. Then they become men and they run through all these relationships with uh, with destruction left behind them because we didn't teach them how to even have a mature conversation, how to be able to hold space for their feelings their partner's Correct. feelings and or their friend's feelings and to navigate that. We haven't done, we, we messed that up. You know what I'm yes. saying? So yes. then it takes them, what is it? 20, it it's like men, just marriage. Not that everybody has to get married, but right. I think it's by like their fifth marriage where they finally settle down and it comes way later in life. So we have done them a disservice, sent them out into the adult world and said, take the next 20, 25 years to figure that out. Yeah. And, no, and break hearts, break, break people's hearts and feelings on the way. Right. We didn't teach you how to handle all of that when you were were a child because it's it's too difficult. It's not. It's taboo. Like I, no, I, no, that no. doesn't sit well with me. No, 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 no. And I I, I want to echo exactly what you just said because that is like one of the biggest platform issues and why I'm here. Not only in my therapy work, but in this platform that we're that we're creating in this space that we're creating. I see all the the after effects, everything that you just described, right? Because of the work, the nature of the work that I do, I see the side effects. I see what happens when you when you teach a young man to suppress, 
and I can speak from my own lived experience. And that's a and let me let me uh, let me make a generalization. These are observations that I have made that I've been fortunate enough to make by the amount of people that I've been able to work with and talk to. Okay. One thing I always like to point out in my experience, it's not even a, a issue within the United States. This is a global issue in terms of gender roles. When it comes to young men, I'm going to try to summarize and synthesize what you just said, sort of the lens and how I express it. We want young men and men to behave a certain kind of way in terms of being emotionally intelligent, being aware, being expressive, being vulnerable. But we do not create the right conditions for them to learn. Facts. Everything that you said, going back to what you said in the very, very beginning of this episode, there was no part of that conditioning that says, hey, son, be open with me. Talk to me about what's going on. The first thing that you said that I remember from your father was, I don't have time for you. That's the effect that it gives. I don't have time for you. If I don't have time for you, I definitely don't have time for how you feel. So shut that down. Then what did you just say a moment ago about your mother? Don't be a pussy. What does that mean to a young man? Nobody cares how you feel. Keep it to yourself. Suppress it effectively, right? We have so many expressions when it comes to young men to tell them to keep it to themselves. We say, don't be a girl. Don't be a pussy. Walk it off. Man up. Suck it up. All right. That's just a fraction of what we tell young men. What happens over time when you keep telling them that for their lifetime? Do not be shocked. This is the therapy side talking now. Don't be shocked when they're in a relationship and they don't open up. You can't be surprised. Nobody ever made them feel comfortable. You got to think about it. Not you, but, you know, for the audience out there. If you don't get taught to be comfortable with your mother and your father, the people who birthed you into this world. They're usually the people that we identify with and think they're the ones that are going to give me the most grace, the most patience, the most mm-hmm. love, the most mm-hmm. empathy, the most mm-hmm. compassion. When you don't get that from them, how do you think you measure everybody else in your life? Do you think like, oh, Mr. Cook clearly loves me? No, I'm going to be looking at him sideways. Mm-hmm. If my father didn't love me in the way that I would like, why would I expect Mr. Cook to? Mm-hmm. He's not even my father. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we don't create the conditions for young men to actually be able to be vulnerable. So what happens? As you just pointed out, and it was very accurate. We have failed relationships, failed marriages. Sometimes we have poor or non-existent relationships with children. And then the cycle continues. Yeah. So that's a big reason why I'm even here, why I'm reaching out to brothers like you. Because I know that we need to see it. We need to see this level of vulnerability and that, we're, you know, it's okay. It is absolutely okay to talk about how we feel, to talk about where we failed, to talk about how we got hurt, but then look at where we are today. Not that we're perfect, we're works in progress, mm-hmm. but it takes continuous effort and work to, to be on this path, but that you are justified and valid in expressing how you feel. I don't care about what you're told in your household. I'm telling you, it is okay to feel. Yeah. But unfortunately, I am one voice amongst a sea of individuals <laughs> who still say that even though they want these type of men, they do not create the environments to create the outcomes for those type of men. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Okay. Beautiful. 
Because yeah, you, <laughs> when, when you hit that, I'm like, that's in my heart, man. That's in my heart. As a father, especially, as, and I can imagine for you having, do you have one son or two sons? I have. <clears throat> my oldest is a senior. My second child, my daughter, she's a sophomore. My youngest, okay. he's a freshman. So I got three high okay. schoolers. Okay. But especially with young men, right? Like that to me is the essence of what we're talking about. I'm sure you could, you, you might agree as a parent is, you know, we take what we experienced growing up and we try to remix it in a way that we get a better outcome. We want like mm -hmm. better relationships, mm -hmm. maybe more comfortability, <clears throat> being open, things like that. So that goes to the heart of what we're discussing. Then we have to be, we as the fathers, right? Parents yeah. in general, but in the fathers in this case, we yeah. have to be intentional about creating that space for our sons so that they know that that's normal and that that's okay. Absolutely. To fight exactly what you outlined, to fight that. If we don't yes. want you to have multiple failed relationships, not that you won't have any, right? We can't prevent everything, but that we can try to a certain degree to make you not have to go so far down that painful road that it might end up skewing your perception of reality. Mm -hmm. But I have to be willing as your father to give you my experience. I have to bear my soul to you so that you can learn, right? Yeah. You can learn from my, and if you don't have a father, hopefully you have a male role model like Mr. Cook who may be willing to tell you a bit about some of those experiences or help you get yourself into therapy to learn to work out some of that stuff. So again, you don't have to have those outcomes. That's a big issue that, that I try to echo that sentiment every single time I'm talking to somebody because I know how hard it is. I understand fully the mm -hmm. mountain of opposition, you could say, that mm -hmm. I'm against because mm -hmm. I'm only one person. I am one parent. I am one therapist. I am not everybody's not on this wave yet, but I'm hoping to encourage others to speak out. And if we recognize that we don't like these outcomes, we're tired of it, then we need to go back to the job board and understand we created these monsters. Mm -hmm. Not that young men are monsters, but these situations, we created them to make them, in many cases, facilitate them turning out like this. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully that's my, I'll get off that soapbox now. <laughs> Well, I mean, um, to your point, right, <clears throat> with our with our sons, uh, even my daughter, but mm -hmm. we're talking about boys like right. <clears throat> I didn't. Um, my dad wasn't around, like I said, but he's it's funny because I just took my kids. They met their black side of the family for the first time. I just took them to D.C. Mm. at the beginning of this year. OK. Um, and it's interesting because I wasn't I not raised around my black family, but I was telling my partner, I was like. Yo, it's interesting because I'm, I was like, you know how you're talking about I'm extra? I said, I'm around my black family. And I'm like, yo, they so extra. Like, they extra about <laughs> This is where I get it from. Like, <clears throat> I'm not even around them. And I picked this up from them. But yeah. they're very loving, very, um, uh, when I say extra, like, celebratory. I, I celebrate people. It's just part of my, uh, it's part of who I am. I just... We don't say yeah. it often enough. So when I say it, I make sure I put a little extra sauce on it, you know, uh, just to make sure people really, really get the message, bring a smile yeah. to their face. And my family is very much that way. The black side of my family is that way. Um, but I wasn't raised that way. I mean, my mom, um, if, if, my, if mom, if you ever watch this, I love you. We're, <laughs> we're beyond this. This is, this is past. This is a matter of fact. Um, yeah. But she didn't, with my brother, she was super loving to my brother. But for me, she wasn't. In fact, she didn't say I love you to me until I was 25. 
And that was the first time she hugged me. Well, I take it back. The last time she hugged me, I was in fourth grade. That's when they, I was in an alternative school for knocking out my teacher and they let me come back to my regular school. And she picked me up and she drove me to school and she gave me a hug. That was the last time she hugged me again until I was mm. 25 when I got my master's degree. That was uh, the first time she hugged me. So I, yeah. I went all that time, 21 years, watching her be affectionate to my brother, super lovey. But I'm here like, what I'm, I got straight A's, mom. Like I'm taking care of myself. Like I'm doing big things. My brother's getting in trouble. Like you're super lovey to him. Like what I got to do? Like I thought this is what I would do to get get love, right? So when I became a parent, I said it was difficult. It is still a challenge, but it's a, a bit more natural for me. But my sons all the time. I love you. Give me a hug. Where are you going? You just gonna walk away? You ain't gonna give me no hug. I don't care. If <laughs> I, I want a hug, right? My my um, especially my my oldest. I work with him a lot about vocalizing his emotions because he doesn't. So I see in him what I used to struggle with. But he's in an environment where I'm not suppressing it. I'm inviting right. it. But there has that imitation is there. But there still has to be where he accepts the imitation because if I force it then it's going to do the exact same thing where it's suppressed. Whereas my youngest son, RJ, I like, I look at him wrong, tears. tears. <laughs> I used to get so frustrated, like, boy, I need you to like, I, I can't have a conversation with you like this. And then it dawned on me about a year ago. So he's 13 now. So he was 12. It was about a year ago. I looked at him and I, it like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had this wave of empathy run over me and I was like, he's his father's son. He is his father's son, and I got to do a better job of teaching him how to process his emotions, communicate his emotions, and and to be honest, to not be overly emotional because you can be too far on the other side where emotions is just running your life and it's just vomiting it, right? Like there's there's guardrails, right? We have to have a balance. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we're in the bowling alley and we're putting the rails up. So I'm trying to teach him how to stay within within the alley, bump, the lane, bump right? the lanes, bump the lanes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's been my process with him. I've been a bit more intentional about that over uh, uh, since I had that revelation. I mean, I was before, like I always told him, listen, your emotions are not a bad thing. It's just when, when they get skewed and that's what's running you, then we have a problem because you're running over people and doing stuff out of emotion that you're going to later regret, right? So like yes. with him, we yes. talk a lot. We talk a lot about emotions, how you feel, what you're thinking. Let's connect thought and feeling, which came first, like, He's my, I can therapize with him and he therapizes back with me. But I think there's something to be said with our young boys, especially if you're a parent, to have those type of conversations. Normalize emotions, normalize talking about your emotions, and normalize having open discussions about what does, how does this impact our relationship and what does this look like going forward? RJ, even this, as a father, I'm not perfect. Ross, I mess up all the time, all Same. the time. Same. But one of the yeah, one of the things that I do with my kids, we actually, I just had this conversation with them the other day because I told them like y'all have to do a better job of owning your stuff. I said I model for y'all. There is not, a, I said think back, think back now. There is not a time where I mess up that I don't come back and apologize to you as your father. My bad. I disrespected you. I could have handled that better. Right. My apologies. Do you forgive me? How do we move forward? I have those conversations with them because I know when they become adults, guess what? 
you're going to have to have those conversations with people that you love and are in relationships. So I practice that with them. And I think it's important as, as parents, as educators, as leaders to do that male, female, son, daughters, it doesn't matter. Like we have to do a better job of that so that we have more fully functioning adults. No, absolutely. That was my secret. No, 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 no. Beautifully said. And I think even to echo that last point, right? Like you said, modeling that, you know, that's a very good counseling term. We are always modeling. Yeah. Right. When when it's young person, like not necessarily when they're very, very young only, like, especially if you're working in a school, right? Like you're, that, that goes back to my point when I was talking about my client who is a teacher, I'm like, I remind him of that often. I'm like, listen, both as parents. And if you're fortunate enough to be a teacher, same thing. Like you're modeling appropriate behavior. You have to consider it like whether you like it or not. Like you have sort of a spotlight on you and the kids are watching you. They're observing you. They're looking at your demeanor, your attitude, your tone, and the language that you choose to use with them. And I challenge him, uh, particularly because of the the community that he works in. He works in predominantly Black and Latino school, if I'm not mistaken. And so a lot of them, you know, don't have father figures around as much, and it can be rather rough, the backgrounds that they come from, the homes that they come from. And so we talk a lot about working through that frustration because, you know, as a teacher, he's like, man, I really want the best for these kids, but it's hard because I'm sort of fighting their environment. And I'm like, yeah, brother, I I get it. It's hard because you don't get to control that. All we get to control is our reactions and responses to these different situations. But one thing that you can do to go to echo your point, one thing that we can do, whether you're a teacher or a parent, he happens to be both. We can control the way that we choose to engage with them, the way that we choose to respond to them. So maybe they aren't getting the best uh, role models at home and they are being taught to yell and scream and curse and argue and fight. And you can't you can't hold yourself to the standard like I'm supposed to fix that because that's not within your that's not the purview of your power. Yeah. But you can't express yourself in healthy ways that maybe, maybe you plant the seed that might seep in their brain for a while. And maybe it takes a while to manifest, but maybe it will at some point. But you know Mm -hmm. what? Mr. Cook was. He was always reasonable. You know, like he didn't scream at me. He didn't holler at me. He didn't disrespect me. Uh, If he did, he came back and talked to me about it to make me feel better. He allowed me to speak openly. And a lot of kids, unfortunately, again, especially if we talk about boys, but a lot of kids in general, they don't get those spaces to do that. Yeah. So creating those environments, again, very, very important. And absolutely what you said about it starts with us creating that environment with our children when they're young. And you talked about accountability. Like, I'm huge on that. That's a big one. One thing I'll just, you know, to give you some context for that, like my father would almost never take responsibility for anything. Like, almost never apologized. The only time it would be was if it was like a severe beating, then maybe I would get it the same way I would get love afterwards. So the context of it was so skewed. It was so warped that it warped me because of my perception, right? You only know what's normal to you is only normal to you because it's what you experience, right? Everybody doesn't have the same experience growing up. Yeah. And so because of that, it was very difficult for me to understand that. So if I continue to stay in those types of environments, it's going to be very difficult for me to be open later on. But if we make the intentional effort to take accountability, to apologize, to say we're sorry, to offer love and condolences, 
um, more often, not just in certain circumstances, the kids will be more adjusted. Yeah. Right. They learn yeah. to express themselves and then they don't need to <clears throat> punch a wall or kick a door or throw a desk or curse you out because they understand how to use their words. You hurt me when you fill in the blank. Yeah. I felt disrespected when you fill in the blank. Yeah. That's more productive. That's productive dialogue. It's not just sitting here. Nah, 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 you said this and, nah, nah, and then, and then or the waterworks come down. You're just making me feel terrible about myself but I have no idea how to give it back to you in a way that you can do something with it. Right. Right. That we can actually resolve something. So right. very, very big point you said there as parents. And even if you're an educator or somebody where you're maybe around a lot of children, you can, one thing you can always do is model better behavior. And it starts yeah. with us. Yeah. We got to be well. Uh, I'll say one last thing before we continue. When I talk about uh, prioritizing ourselves, so I think of like a hierarchy and I think of it in terms of, I usually say children, relationships, and then you, and at the top of that hierarchy always has to be you. And then it goes your relationship. And then if you have children, then it goes your children. And the reason why I say it in that order is because if you're not well, then your relationship can't be well because you both aren't taking care of yourselves. So <clears> then your relationship will suffer. And if the relationship's suffering, your children will suffer. Because mm -hmm. you don't know how to model appropriate behavior to them. So mm -hmm. then they're getting all these negative effects that we were just outlining. That's all they're going to see. And what do you think they're going to do when it's their turn to be an adult? Largely what they saw. Yeah. So we always need to be our own top first priority so that we can be fluent in all these other areas and the different roles that we play. Yep. So modeling appropriate behavior is one of those areas. And it's something that we can all do, even if it's somebody you don't. Um, maybe you don't work with kids, but you're just in a grocery store. You can still model good behavior to a young person every day. So I think it's just something to be conscious of, no yeah. matter what we do. Yeah. But sort of piggybacking on that that idea, because of a lot of the stuff that you experienced, you know, growing up that you outlined and that you described. Do you remember at any point in time from that very young age up until now that you have sought out mental health services before for yourself? Yeah, I um to be quite candid, it wasn't until year 11 of my previous marriage, we ran into some stuff and uh, started going to counseling, did like six to eight sessions. And then mm -hmm. we ended up <clears throat> divorcing a few years ago. And it was at that point, like I realized um, I had took myself as far as I could go as a, as a man, as an adult, as a, at that time, as a husband, mm. um, as a father. And I was like, it, yeah, yeah. If this is not a wake up call, I, I need to get some, some things addressed. So I've been in therapy ever since the last five years I've done individual work. I've done intensive retreats. I've done small group work. Like it's part of my regular, it's how I take care of myself. Um, right. because I think we're <clears throat> it's so funny, man. It's like I just had this conversation with my partner last night. I was like, hey, listen, <clears throat> I'm just about trying to be the best version of myself. And I surround myself. The people that are my tribe are the people that are on that same journey, because I right. find that not a lot of people are willing to do that work because it's tough. Yes, um, it is. Especially when you have like uh, experiences like similar to me and it, it doesn't lessen or like make mine 
better or more traumatic than somebody else's. But like, there is some stuff that I know it's a direct effect. It's a direct result. The research is out there of my upbringing that, you know, I I did a good job of staying away from some of the outcomes, but there was some internal stuff that I just did not, I did not do a good enough job and I didn't have the tools that I thought that I had. I really didn't. So for me, this is part of that evolution of becoming a man, becoming a leader, becoming a partner, uh, uh, of becoming a father and being the best version that I could possibly be. So I don't have a friend of mine ask, well, what's the end date? And I was like, until I feel like I'm, I'm whole, like, I don't, like, I don't, like, I don't need my, my counselor no more. Not that I need her, but I do need her to continue to help me refine uh, my tools that I have in, in my toolkit so that I can show up as the best version of myself. And then when I don't, then I know how to regulate that and, and things of that nature. So, Oh yeah. Um, yeah, oh, man, yeah. it's something what at least once a month, once a month is a part of my it's like eating. It's once a month is my mental health meal that I that I have. Ah, absolutely. And shout out to you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, number one, these these discussions that we're having, these aren't always easy things to discuss. You know, it's never lost upon me when we choose to share. Because, again, to our points of what we were talking about earlier, a lot of this is is considered taboo because we're not raised to have these types of open dialogues. So I I really respect and appreciate you for even saying that. And of course, your endorsement of therapy, because a lot of us, not because therapy fixes everything, but it does allow you the space to truly reflect introspectively and consider what are some of the things that you've gone through that you've experienced that may be shaping and affecting your reality in this present moment. And sometimes we don't, you know, or not sometimes, and a lot of times we don't, we're not allowed or give ourselves a space to address them. So that's a big part of, you know, why I'm here is to give some perspective, not because I know everything. There's so many things. I asked that question because there's so many things that I've had to learn in my process of therapy over the years to even allow me to be able to do it with somebody else. Right. That's so much stuff going on because of what I had to deal with growing up. I dealt with a lot of grief and a lot of loss early on in my life from a very, very young age. So like that certainly played a, a big role in how I saw the world and can make you bitter and aggressive and angry. And so learning how to manage that, how to cope with that, how to regulate, very, very important. And so I really respect what you said there. I hope any man, young, old, middle-aged, whatever, indifferent, would consider doing that simply because, like we said earlier, a lot of us are not given that space. So it's important to invest in ourselves. Give ourselves that space. If nobody else wants to be there for you or support you in that way, then give it to yourself. If you come to somebody like me, not that it has to be me, but there are other providers out there that you can find somebody in that space that will help you to learn how to navigate your emotions and what those traumatic and non-traumatic experiences were that you experienced through majority of your life and possibly some connections with why you see the world the way that you do, with why you parent the way that you do, why you've had the failed relationships that you've had, not because it's always your fault. But it's important to reflect on them to understand where we can afford to improve and grow and evolve, as you said, beautifully. And I want to encourage and promote that more. You know, so it takes to me that maybe this is my selfish perspective. I think it takes brothers like you and me to put it out there. Yeah. Like we have to be willing to sort of own that so that way people can see they're fallible. Right. We're humans, but we we're fallible. We make mistakes. And yet we can still be on a better path. We can still grow from them. We can still be better off. They're all learning lessons at the end of the day. 
Yeah. So I'm glad that you support that. And I encourage anybody out there who who has never tried therapy, and I get a lot of first timers, to consider trying it. Seriously. You you might be very surprised in some of the outcomes that you might get simply because you were given a space to freely speak and communicate about some of those things that maybe you've had, maybe in some cases, some people have buried their entire life. Like I've had those experiences and it's 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 sometimes hard. I have to kind of control my emotions because I'm watching somebody like almost open their eyes for the first time because mm-hmm. they've been sitting in this closet, buried all these skeletons and and just terrible memories that they've never let out mm-hmm. or they let them out in these very unhealthy ways. So, you know, they never get addressed. They just kind of like right. cause destruction and then we move on. Right. So I, I really support everything that you said there and I hope other people get encouraged as well. Agreed. Um, and then sort of along that line, but going more into back to your upbringing a bit, cause I like to talk about culture in the way that it shapes our perception. But in your case specific, I want to talk a little bit more about identity because you made some very clear distinctions in the way both sides of your family is operated, right? Yeah. In terms of how, especially in terms of how they treated you. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any parts of those lived experiences that you had growing up that created uh, some, maybe some difficulty, some challenge with how you saw yourself as you've gotten older? Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's the, the old adage a black and white biracial child. We ain't white enough for the black folks and we ain't dark. We're too dark for the white folks. So, um, but you know, what's interesting about that is that um, society sees me as a black man. Like I I have uh, here in my community, I have about a handful of run-ins with law enforcement where It was racially profiled. And in one one situation, I almost lost my life. I thought I was going to die that night for sure. Mm. Um, so I had those experience, right, that these cops didn't pull. I, I was speeding. I was seven miles per hour over. That turns into four squad cars there. Guns getting pulled out on me. Like, how do, how do we justify that, right? That right. was clearly because I was a black man and I was a threat to them, even though with part of what got me off was my squeaky clean record. Like okay, I had a couple of speeding tickets on my license. My car is mad clean. I've got my college books in my book bag, in my trunk and a CD case, like, or a, yeah, a, a pocket of, of CDs. Like that's literally, that's all, all in my car. Like there's nothing, I have nothing. Right. So it, it was a bit of a, a challenge to, to merge that, I would say like I had this affinity towards the black community because of my lived experiences, but I also know that I, I'm biracial. I have a white mom that raised me and I wasn't raised around my black family, but yet I have older black folks in my life that mentor me, treat treat me as such. I'm accepted mm-hmm. as such. Um, I, and I'll be honest, RJ, I'll be 42 this year. I'll actually be 42 in a couple of weeks. Um, I would say probably four years ago, I probably came to grips with that. Mm. I, like I know who I am. I know what I stand for. I know what uh, speaks to me, what resonates with me. And what's funny is that when I look back at, on my life as a professional, once I yeah. started working as a professional, all the spaces that I've been in, 
and it, it happened. I know I was like being intentional about it, but I've, I've forgotten it until now that I'm in this space and the work that I'm doing, that's super intentional, especially around black and brown males. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I have diversified or bettered the cause for black and brown students. My workspace has become more diversified. The church that I was at was more diversified. Uh, programming within schools is closing the gap um, as there is a disparity amongst our black and brown students, uh, diversified leadership. One of the things that I didn't say is I did start as a teacher, fifth grade, third grade, became a school counselor at that K-8 I was at, transferred to our second most vulnerable high school, um, became a college and career counselor there, got promoted to the district for two years. I was the only black district administrator. Uh now it's diversified. My boss is a uh, woman of color, black female. Um, one of our other assistant superintendents is a Latina. Uh, like it's space is being diversified. Programs right, within right. my community are closing the gaps for what I feel is are, are everybody's my people, but I have an affinity towards this because I'm a man of color, right? Sure. So it took me a long time to come to grips with that and to to be okay walking in my skin, knowing that I'm biracial, but I'm black. Like, no, yeah, yeah I'm, that's, I'm that's big facts, man. Again, I appreciate the the candidness, and it's interesting the way you describe that. Um, you 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 meant when you first started talking, you sort of reminded me. I, I don't remember if my father told me this, or it might have been him. It could have been one of my uncles, but I remember somebody telling me that you know who whoever your father is is who you are. Right. In terms of like my father's black. So it's like, well, you're black. It doesn't matter right. who your mom is or where she's from. And so that's why that was like sort of my mentality, pretty much majority of my life. But as you said, there was some challenges there because you don't always fit. And I definitely had my fair share of that. And I will say, in fairness to my sister, she's a lot more fair skinned than I am. So she had <laughs> a whole lot more challenge than than I did. I, I fit a bit more, I think, than she did, but you know, she yeah. tried to overcompensate. So shout out to <laughs> but um but but the challenges were there nonetheless, right? Trying to be enough over here and then trying to be enough over here and not yeah. necessarily knowing how you fit. And then obviously because we're not having these conversations with our parents, not getting any guidance. And and to be fair to them, it would be very hard for them to be able to give guidance because it's not their lived experience. I was like, how do you talk about it? Like my son, I can talk to him about what it means to come from a multicultural environment because I've had to navigate it my whole life. Right. So I can give him some game to be like, you know, you don't have to identify with every part of you, but just know that you are a part of all of that. Yeah. So I think that that's important to to distinguish that. Um, but it does play a role and it, and it can make it difficult in how you see yourself. And I even when you just said a moment ago about it being recent, you know, that you got kind of comfortable in your skin. I mean, I had a similar epiphany. I'm 35. I had a similar epiphany. I would say a couple years ago, because like, for example, me growing up, my dad was very, maybe it was because of the Navy, but he was always like, you know, you need to be clean cut, low, you know, low, basically like a high and tight pretty much all the yeah, time. I had, yeah, I, yeah. I had long hair a little bit when I was a kid, but once I got out of elementary, it was like, cut that down, keep it short. So it was always short. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I actually allowed myself to grow my hair out because I had that, that notion in my mind that like it was going to be looked at as less than or wasn't mm-hmm. as um, I wasn't as well groomed as maybe my white counterparts. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, kind of in my head about it. And then I, I fortunately, I used to work at um, UCF and I used to work with international students exclusively. 
So I got to meet a lot. I got to meet a lot of brothers and sisters from Africa, from Ghana, Nigeria, and all these different places. And they were very comfortable on their skin because obviously that's all they knew. And mm-hmm. for some reason, that just like touched me. You know, and it gave mm-hmm. me a, a, a higher level of acceptance of self. And so I started growing my hair out because I was like, I was cool with it, you know, and now I feel like it's much more me. Mm-hmm. But it took me a long time to get there because, mm-hmm. you know, the way we a lot of times the way we grow up is like, no, you know, you kind of need to fit in more. And because you're an other, you like you mm-hmm. really need to fit in. And I say other to be mm-hmm. for, to clarify for those who don't know. When I was growing up, a lot of those standardized tests you had to take, there was no biracial, multiracial box. Mm-hmm. So I used to always draw in my own box or you had to check other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not that you're not another, but back then that's kind of how they looked at us. Yeah. And so it was, again, hard to formulate like who we are and how we identify and things like that. So I think for and and on a positive note, there are more kids now being born that are like us, which is awesome. Yeah. So we hopefully these discussions will be more commonplace. Yeah. Right. Of how you not necessarily how you fit in, but how you formulate your own identity. Yeah. Because, right, like you said, like you might identify mainly with the white side. You might identify with the black side. Understand they're both a part of you. Yeah. And then, you know, and from a society standpoint, they might look at you a certain kind of way, you know, because if we started getting to which we're not necessarily going to. But if we started getting into colorism, then we start saying, you know, like, are you white passing, you know, depending on how fair skinned you are, your hair texture, eye color. Um, I haven't had that issue, but you know, we know that that exists within the black community, even in Latino communities as well. The more fair skinned you are, the more European esque you look, the easier you can pass. So then you can kind of keep that ethnic side to the side. So -hmm. people don't know, but Mm -hmm. I'm here to promote acceptance and encouragement for us to be our authentic selves. And that doesn't mean you have to embrace all parts of your culture uh, because it depends on how you grew up, but I hope that people accept all the parts that made them, you know, whether you identify with them or not, that you accept that, like, yeah, these both are parts of me and I love them because they made me, but I maybe identified more over here because this is the environment predominantly that I was exposed to when I was coming up. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else that you, that you think you need to add to that or that you want to give some perspective on. No, that was, you just summarized that. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Because it's nuanced, right? It like really I, I'm is. not. I'm not an expert on this. It, it's very nuanced. This is a very, very nuanced conversation. I, I love is. talking about it because it's hard. It's very, very hard to like. How do you figure out how you identify? It's very it difficult. Is. I mean, and look, look. To be super candid, so, um, and I have no qualms about this. I know why I did it. I'm comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um. But I married I married a white woman and my so my kids have a a white mother, white family, you know. Mm. So when I when I talked about it wasn't until a few years ago. Now mind you, I'm about five years on my on my own going through my therapeutic process and stuff, which really helped all of that. I'm not gonna lie, I had um while I was okay with it, I still had some shame around it because I'm like, wait a minute, like but I have this thing I want to put on for my people, but I'm over here doing, I like this. And now my kids are mixed and they're, they're not from a woman of color. Like a lot of that is going on. And, and to be honest, I just, I ain't really know who to talk to about that stuff. So I yeah. just kind of, you know, in my mind, mulling it over and 
Oh, I should have just started therapy so much no. sooner. I would have been. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's been light years ahead of where I am right now. That's fair. But you know what I would say to you, though, in all honesty, because, you know, this is to me, this is the nuance, right? Because I hear what you're saying. Like, I want to say something to offer offer a different perspective on that just real quick. Yeah. Because somebody might, you know, somebody I, I can imagine somebody agree with that. Like, man, I want to put on for my people. Yeah. Because I, I hear these discussions, right? Like, I hear, like, more influential people talk about this, like, you know, if you really want to do well for the community, you better marry a sister. Yeah. Right. Like that. If you don't do that, you're not for the community. You're not for the yeah. culture. Like yeah. I hear those things. So I get where you're going from with that. Yeah. But this is what I want to say to you, though. But your mother was white. Yeah. So if you saw, like, for example, not, not trying to put words in your mouth, but if you said, like, but I love my mother and my yeah. mother's white. Yeah. So why would I not maybe not want my kids to have a white mother? I think you are well within your rights to say that. Yeah. Because that was your lived experience. That would be like somebody telling me, again, if some man told me, like, well, you're not for the culture if you don't marry a black woman. I'm like, well, my mom was Latina. So am I not allowed to marry a Latina woman if I want to and procreate with with them? Yeah. You might say that's unfair, but that's because your mother was black. Yeah. I get why you say that, but that's yeah. not fair to me. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I'm still black, so then my kids are still going to be partially black i can still raise them with those values and part of that culture culture it still mm -hmm. it still encompasses them you might you know the only way that matters is if you start trying to count percentages and and all that and I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going down that road like are you a fourth are you a fifth are you an eighth like i'm not going down that road i'm like hey yeah. like we said yeah. earlier you half you black you a quarter you black if you look like you're black you're black black yeah yeah and and, and if it, you know if, and if it's in your family so yeah. I just want to say that to you because I think, you know, for there's any brothers out there that might feel some type of way about that. Like I care about my community. I want to support them. I would say uh, me being me, I never want to be exclusionary. Yeah. Right. In these discussions, I never want to come across as I don't like our white brothers and sisters who do amazing work and they support us and a lot of the struggles that we face. Right. I never want to come across that way because I don't believe in that. Yeah. But what I also want to say is it's OK to also pay attention to those that are the most disenfranchised or the most marginalized. Yeah, I think that's also OK. And that's also part of my lived experience. So that's why I speak to it. But if I was yeah. half white or mixed with white, I wouldn't want to be like, well, I'm not allowed to embrace any aspect of being white because, well, this side is super uh, disenfranchised. So I can't acknowledge that. I would say no. If that's yeah. your people, too, I think it's yeah. absolutely OK to embrace them. Yeah. You know, because you, you yeah. sort of need people on the inside. Right. You need people to challenge their thinking, their beliefs, who better in some cases than your family. Just like in the black community, it could be the same thing. You need brothers and sisters who are willing to, like, challenge things that maybe aren't the best for us. Yeah. But if it's an outsider, as some people might perceive it as they might be like, yo, I'm not listening to that. Like, you don't know my lived experience. Don't try to talk to me about what it's like. You yeah. might have all the statistics in the world. I don't care. But if a brother comes talk to you or a sister comes talk to you, you might be more receptive. Yeah. So I want us to hopefully to foster a space where we can embrace all aspects of who we are. But in this case, you and I have chosen to focus on a particular area of our lives and our culture that we feel are in need. And I think yeah. that that's, that's also okay. Yeah. I'm with you. There's the okay. human race experience right and then there's your yes. your race or your culture that you're gonna yes. put on for whatever that looks like so yes yeah i'm i'm 
trying to connect with a diversity is huge for me. So I'm trying to connect with everybody on, on a certain level, but definitely my affinity is towards black and brown people, especially black and brown males, just cause like you said, disenfranchisement, like that's where it's, it's most. So. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful, man. No, no. Discussion has been ah, so helpful, but I want to end by asking you, like I typically do what you see for your future you know, what other ambitions or goals that you have either personally or professionally that you really want to continue striving towards, or maybe something that you haven't even, you haven't even brought up yet that you're working on. Yeah. I mean, um, really, uh, I, I entered into this position four years ago. So again, five years on my own doing my therapeutic work and stuff. And I think this is the, this past year was the year that I kind of came into my own a bit. Uh, again, head down. I just do work. Um, but I realize the impact that I'm making and the connections that I that I've been able to to foster and the, the respect the work it. So uh, right now, the focus is really just trying to close the I call it, it the post secondary attainment gap. Um, you know, the trends in our nation right now is that students aren't going to college more. Black and brown males, if they do go, then they're going the technical college route. I don't really care where they go. I have this saying where, look, when you graduate sitting at home on your mama's couch, eating hot Cheetos, playing video games, that ain't one of the options. So we got to figure out what this looks like for you so you can be a productive member of society. So, yes, sir. yeah, really on my end, it's just it's it's doing a uh, creating the programming and the infrastructure here within the district statewide and even national because I, I sit on a few uh uh, committees and boards that stretch across the United States. I actually yeah. sit on the board that stretches internationally as well. So just oh, trying okay. to figure out what those programs and infrastructures look like to help students and families readily identify their passions and interests and create that programming that helps connect them to it so that when they leave, they can be pursuing something that they're passionate about because if they're passionate about it, to me, that's where they're going to end up making the greatest impact, right? Not doing it because they oh, yeah. have to do it or just because they have to provide, but doing marrying the two. I'm passionate about it. And I want to be able to provide for myself, marrying the two and then pursuing that. So oh, yeah. um, we have some programming that we're doing um, here in the Tri-County area, Orange, Osceola and Seminole, focusing on our Alice families. Uh, I have stuff that I continue to do here in my district, bringing in organizations and things to to provide programs, to give our students immersive experiences and things to help inform their decisions. Um, and the same thing nationally, like that fellows program that I was accepted to is our national college attainment network. Um, I was one of 15 that was accepted nationwide. And I was the only uh, candidate from Florida that was accepted. Um, I don't know what the demographic makeup is. So we'll figure out male, female, we'll figure out what our races and things, ethnicity, what that looks like. But uh, I get a whole year of leadership training in this space that I'm in for college attainment, post-secondary attainment, uh, to just help me better create those programs and infrastructure. So like things are just kind of all coming together this year. Yeah. So it's getting better at what, I, what I've been doing. I've laid the foundation. Now it's time to build upon that foundation in the event that I'm not here somebody else can carry on that mantle. And, and more importantly, our families, our students that are in our community are able to access things that, like for me, I didn't have help. I want them to be able to say, nope, I had all the help that I could possibly get. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, that big, big, big respect there. Um, 
because it means you know essentially you're you're continuing to build on this legacy that you're already laying out like you said right now and i think that's really important you know we need different people in different spaces there's different ways for us to attack this issue we have different um skill sets different career interests but if if the end all be all is we want more well-adjusted students young people who are going to be productive members of society as you said on the emotional side, you know, I can do my particular part on the therapy side. You can obviously do your part since you sort of can walk in between both worlds since you were trained that way mm-hmm. and leverage those skills and experiences with in, in the educational system. Mm-hmm. And we need other people in other sectors, right, to also play a role. It's not something that only one side of us is going to like completely resolve these issues. So I think it's important to support each other. Right. Like one thing I've realized in my own space, because I work, you know, I work for myself, I'm a private practitioner, is this the importance of community. And sometimes from what I've seen, particularly for those of us that are trying to address these particular issues like we're talking about with young men, is that it can be very isolating. It can be very lonely uh, because you want to do so much. You want to try so hard. The benefit of networking and creating that network of individuals who are all on the same page, but again, with maybe within their own sphere that they work in, mm-hmm. I think that's very powerful. So I, that's one thing I've been I've been working on by having a lot of these discussions is trying to build this community of those of us that are interested in doing this type of work in our own particular ways and how to bring us together, so we can uplift and support each other because the work is hard. Yeah. Again, this is a, this is. You know, we're, we're talking about society, we're talking about families, all these things that we don't necessarily have individual control over. But if we can sort of aggregate more of us together, perhaps there's a way for us to be a part of that sea of change. So I appreciate you for not only the work that you're doing, but for the passion, you know, that you have to want to create that type of change. I think it's important to leverage that in all of these different environments. I, I, I hope that you can tell I feel similarly in my space because of what I've witnessed, not just as an individual, but also what I've witnessed in doing this type of work. Like when we were talking about earlier about trying to stop a lot of those negative outcomes that we see mm-hmm. that requires us, you know, to do a lot of what we're, what I believe what we're doing here today. And I, I do believe we accomplished something today by creating this space where you are very open and I very much appreciate it. And if you can't tell, I, I like to mirror that back. <laughs> so that people feel comfortable, you know, and, and I hope there's some young men out there or men of whatever age and women, if they find this information valuable to really look within and really reflect and be honest with some of the things that they might have dealt with, because however you see the world right now, it doesn't have to stay that way. However you choose to behave and, and engage with people, it doesn't have to continue to be that way. But it does require us, as you said, beautifully to do our work. Therapy is work. Yeah. Reflection is work. Uh, growth is work. work. None of it's simple, you know, but it's beautiful when you continue through the process and you can see the change. You know, you see like, okay, I was here, like you said, like five years ago, I was here and had I been doing some of this work, maybe some of the other things may not have happened, yeah. but, but, I, but I am here today because of this last five years of work that I have been doing in therapy. To me, that's powerful. Yeah. Somebody out there needs to hear that. That this man is, has helped push his life forward because he's been giving himself the space to do that work. 
And I, I hope that that gives more people encouragement because, you know, especially for black and brown men, we are the least likely to seek out help in general, men in general, yeah. black and brown men, especially because there's a lot yeah. of cultural added added to that, that make it seem like you're more weak if you choose to take assistance of any kind. And yeah. I'm here to also try to combat that as well. I don't know if you if there's anything you think that might need to be um, further emphasized when it comes to the young men and seeking out help at all. Uh, first, let's start here. It's commendable what you're doing. So since this is being, since we're putting this on, let's go ahead. You be all gracious to your guests and stuff, but we need to reach <laughs> back and be gracious to you. It's commendable what you're doing, uh, rounding out people to have discussions like this. And, I, you know, we might not see the immediate impact, but like you said who knows what seed was, was was planted and what uh generational curse was broken and what trajectory was changed because of the conversations that we're having and that was because this was something that you were passionate about and sought out to do so um shout out to you um and the Thank platform you, that you created and the work that you're doing within the community that, that's all i'm going to say that 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 is how you end the podcast is by thanking <laughs> the guests for all of i mean thanking the, the host for all of you that are out there because they don't have to do this this takes work man this there's a lot of work behind doing stuff like this and being it able does. to hold space for these conversations and things but you have a, a passion and a vision and this is uh you know helping to support that so I know we just met not too long ago, but I'm super proud of you, super excited about the work that you're doing. So thank, thank you. you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you, man. Ah, I appreciate that. I, I know um, you said earlier, and I agree, we don't always like taking flowers, but I do appreciate it because um, you're right. It is a lot of work, and but I do feel very impassioned to do something. You know, I think a lot about impact and purpose, being purpose driven. And to me, I think this is this is why I'm here to hopefully facilitate more of these conversations. I think in, in counseling, I think that's a lot of what we do is we facilitate mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. um, but to, you know, to facilitate the type of conversation to allow us to look within and to be comfortable, hopefully to draw some of that pain out so that people can see, not because it, it uh, immediately benefits you to do that, but it allows you to invoke that type of process that makes it feel comfortable, that eventually mm -hmm. makes it feel safe. And then mm -hmm. the beautiful part, I will end on saying this last point, because I think this is truly the beautiful part of what I've been fortunate enough to do, is when you get to connect with somebody because of that painful experience that you brought out. When you thought I was the only person that had that type of experience, and then you share it with your therapist, or you share it with you know another loved one or somebody you, you just respect, and they're like, oh yeah, I've had a similar experience. You're like, whoa, mm -hmm. how? How is that possible? Because I literally thought I was the only one that went through that. And again, talking about community, that's the power of that. Because you recognize that you're not alone. You're not isolated. You don't have to be afraid. And you can trust in other people who, not just because they have the similar experience, but they generally want to help you grow and evolve as you probably want to do for them. And I think that that's so powerful. And I hope to encourage more people through these discussions to do that. Again, not necessarily that you need to come on a platform and you need to discuss it openly, <laughs> but at least, you know, do your own work, you know, with maybe you start with a, a loved one, a family member, a friend that you hold dear and you respect their opinion. Maybe you start there and that helps set you on the path to get your own therapist and do your own work. Because mm -hmm. uh, that's why we're here is to support you in, in your own development and your own growth. And um, 
that's a big reason why I like having these discussions is because I get to learn so much from you guys and women that I've been fortunate enough to speak to and that have made the time to speak with me because so many times we don't get to see that again, that representation. And I'm glad that I got to see a brother like you on here. And I hope that anybody else that maybe is interested in education or career development or career exploration, you need to look for my man, Anthony, because he's obviously got a lot of experience in the field and see that it's real. He's a real person who really does that work. And if you care about the next generation, about teaching or being in the classroom of any kind, I hope that they may consider reaching out to you and just recognizing that it is a real profession that you can pursue. We don't all have to be musical artists and athletes, not that there's nothing wrong with those things, but we can be more. And I wanna challenge all of us to do that. So thank you again for being here, man. I hope anybody who got some value from watching or listening to this, please consider liking or subscribing because it helps to like produce more of this content. It does take considerable effort, but I really do love what I'm doing. And I hope that you guys get to benefit from these discussions. So until then, I'm RJ. I'm going to sign off and say peace out.